Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Breaking pandemic news, the United States just topped 9 million confirmed coronavirus we cases. We are on pace to get a vaccine and record time for a novel pathogen. The White That's House said on this, the riots in Philadelphia are the most recent consequences laptop and emails were not part of a Russian disinformation campaign. And the senior federal officials... And I stand with the protesters. Charge the cops. Charge all what the cops. What might be the response to more looting? Don't be surprised when mayhem begets more mayhem. Adam. Right. I think there's a way I can do this. Alright. Um, you, you just say hello. Hello, hello, hello. So I'm going to ask you a series... So, I was making this series about Donald Trump. It was called The Accidental Dictator. With American politics more charged and partisan than at any point in recent history... I was following accusations from mainstream commentators that Donald Trump is taking on the characteristics of a dictator. I started this project seeking to investigate the validity of these claims, but given the hyperbolic nature of media coverage, I was finding it hard to discern what commentary had merit, if any of it did. And the project turned into a nightmare. Firstly, my timing was terrible. America is in the midst of a culture war, and seemingly everybody is fighting on social media. Secondly, what seemed to me to be objective truths about Trump and his rise to power didn't resonate with any of my Republican friends. They were all telling me that I had this wrong, that Trump isn't the problem. The more I dug, the more I struggled to find common ground. Whether it was Russiagate, Hillary's emails, or even the size of Trump's inauguration crowd, every story had diametrically opposing views. To make matters worse, it was impossible to keep up with everything. Every day there was a growing list of news stories to navigate, with numerous allegations and no universal source of truth. Honestly, I didn't know what to believe anymore. And then I received a phone call from my producer, Danny. Hi Danny, how you doing? Yeah, good mate, how you doing? Yeah, I'm alright, alright mate, I'm uh, just at the gym, what's up? Um, so... I've been going through episode two today, and to be completely honest, I'm totally not feeling it. I'm glad you said this. I'm really struggling with it too. Um, and so we started again. Because I could have released this 10-part series on why Donald Trump is a moron and all the stupid shit he has done, the lies he has told, and the myths around his business success. But I knew that any Republican listening would have said it was fake news, while any Democrat listening would have nodded their head in agreement. And this is the problem. How has America ended up so bitterly divided? What am I missing with Trump? And most importantly, why is everyone bothering to talk about it when so few people are willing to change their minds? So I called up my buddy Gideon, he's a Texas oil man, and I asked him to put me in touch with the most Republican person he knows. And this is how I met Chart Westcott. You know, I'll just start by actually talking about my dad a little bit. So 
my family is originally from Vicksburg, Mississippi, both of my parents. Now, Char is your typical garden variety American guy. He's an attorney by trade and he loves fishing and football. Uh, my family is originally from Vicksburg, Mississippi, both of my parents. Uh, my father was, um, you know, he grew up very, very poor, like dirt, dirt, you know, as we would call it, you know, trailer park trash poor um, in Mississippi. And he was born in 1939, lied about his age um, without graduating high school and joined the army just so he could get out of Mississippi. Uh, grew up and, you know, he ended up selling cars. Uh, by the time he was 27 years old, he owned, uh, he owned his first car dealership. His dad worked hard. And by the time he was 35, he had grown his business to 13 dealerships across the country. He embodied the American dream. Here's a guy who goes from being born in, you know, the most deplorable, impoverished situation you can imagine and goes on to, you know, start a, a company dealing in satellite television, um, you know, nearly 45 years later. So it's kind of that classic um, American rags to, to somewhat riches story. For Char, this is what it means to be American and became the foundation of his belief in Republican values, where people can improve their life and the lives of those around them through hard work. Uh, my number one focus for me is government's involvement in, in the economy. Um, I, I want the government interfering in the economy as little as possible. I don't like government telling businesses what to do. I don't like government telling, uh, you know, employers what to do, who they can hire. You know, you know all, all those kinds of rules I, I'm very, very um, opposed to. And, you know, that goes to everything from the, the minimum wage um, all the way up to, uh, you know, sort of healthcare mandates um, on, on employer provided healthcare. So, uh, you know, those are issues that, that for me are, are very important. So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is in the Midwest of the United States. This is my friend Julie. I met her and her husband on a yoga retreat in Italy four years ago, where we ate vegan food, went running and drank lots of Italian wine. I grew up in a you know middle class community and family. Um, I attended public schools from kindergarten all the way through high school. Uh, and then I had an opportunity, you know, I went to college at the University of Illinois. Uh, which is in Champaign-Urbana. And, you know, once I graduated from school, I spent a few years in Chicago, ended up moving to Denver, out to San Francisco, and now I'm actually back in Colorado and Boulder. Julia spent most of her career working in tech for one of the large Silicon Valley companies, and I've stayed with her and her husband a few times when I'm out there. I don't know that we talked about politics as much when I was growing up. However, I know that my family, both my immediate family, my parents and grandparents, as well as aunts and uncles, were voting Democratic. Like we were, I think that was something that just more resonated with my family. My grandmother, uh, who just passed away two years ago, at almost the age of ninety-eight, you know, she she didn't talk about politics, but if you asked her who she was voting for, she always said Democrats. And the reason for that is she just said Democrats are for working people. Julie talks fondly of her grandmother, who was born in 1921 and grew up through the Great Depression. For her, it didn't matter what candidates said. Democrats are for the working people. But during the 2016 election, where Trump surprised the world by winning, 
his campaign focused on blue-collar voters, specifically those in the Rust Belt. This wasn't the first time that voters from traditional Democrat areas flipped Republican in a presidential election. Ronald Reagan famously appealed to voters on both sides, which resulted in what was lately termed the Reagan Democrat, white, working-class Rust Belt voters who defected to the Republicans. Since then, these voters have been an important constituent of presidential victories for both parties, including Barack Obama's two elections. However, where Reagan and Obama's campaigns were based on hope and unity, Trump's campaign stoked fear and division. Yet Trump did not manufacture these divisions. He merely exploited them in a more cynical and explicit way than any previous candidate. Politics is now tribal, and whilst both parties have always had differences, they now seem to be further apart than at any time in recent history. But my interviews indicate that voters from both sides of the divide fundamentally want the same things. Take immigration, for example. Um, you know, I am in Texas. Border security is, is a very serious matter. Uh, it's a very serious um, thing. And, you know, I, I don't want illegal immigrants, um, you know, coming into my state. The Mexican drug wars have infiltrated Texas and there are reported 13 different cartels operating in the state. The Texas Department of Public Safety states that between 2006 and 2015, they seized over $82 billion of drugs. And between 2007 and 2015, there were 43 murders in Texas that were related to cartel criminal activity. This is against a backdrop of massive illegal immigration with nearly 4 million illegal alien apprehensions along the US-Mexico border over the same period. And there has also been an increasing number of assaults on police, kidnappings, extortion and corruption of public officials on both sides of the border. As a Mexican border state, this is a serious issue for Texas. But while Chart has concerns with liberal immigration policies, he also has a genuine compassion for those seeking a better life, which I know would resonate with Julie's values. This is a, you know, a prosperous place. It's a, a free and, and open society, and we want to keep it that way. And, you know, we certainly don't want people, you know, being rounded up and, and shipped out. I mean, that, that's just not my country. That's not what we do. Those who support greater immigration controls are demonised by some on the left, leaving little flexibility in the current climate for compromise. I don't believe that Julie wouldn't support border security, but the approach of Trump hasn't helped. While his supporters sing a chorus of build the wall, he has made the issue binary. Build that wall, 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 build that wall. When people hear that, you know, kind of language around the wall and we're going to build a wall and make the Mexicans pay for it, like, you know, it's, it is divisive language. While simple messages might win elections, the issues themselves are complicated, yet people are being forced to pick a side. What are the things that people care about, right? That, that again, we can all agree on. We want to have a strong economy, right? We want to make sure that unemployment is low. We want people to be healthy and safe, right? I think there's some very like basic fundamental things, right? We, we want to make sure that you know, everyone's above the poverty line. I don't imagine that Chart would take issue with any of these points. Yes, he may disagree on how healthcare is provided, but everybody wants access to affordable healthcare, along with a strong economy that provides meaningful employment. So why has this all been lost? 
Why has the democratic process moved from being about finding common ground on these fundamental issues? If you focus on the things everyone agrees on, or majority of people agree on, we can actually start to build a foundation and respect for everyone on which you can build and deal with some of the more divisive issues. But right now, we don't have that foundation. And this is where Trump has been so divisive. His approach has been to destroy and humiliate anyone who goes against him. Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. Kamala Harris, Kamala. Nobody likes her. She could never be the first woman president. She could never be. Pocahontas, they always want me to apologize for saying it. And I hereby, oh no, I want to apologize, I'll use tonight. Pocahontas, I apologize to you. Okay, question? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. She's shocked that I picked her. No. She's like in a state of shock. I'm not thinking, Mr. That's President. That's okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. You turn on CNN. That's all they cover. COVID, COVID, pandemic, COVID, 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 COVID. You know why they're trying to talk everybody out of voting? People aren't buying it, CNN, you dumb bastards. They're not buying it. For many on the left and some on the right, this conduct is fueling the divide. I really don't vote on, um, and I, I'm different than than a lot of Americans. I think I don't really care so much, um, you know, about the the disposition or feelings or you know personality of my my leader. I'm I'm really more interested in in uh, policy. But to the extent that they do have, you know, a personality, I want it to be one of a leader. I want them to be you know willing to. Um, to lead, um, you know, to to take political risk, to put their uh, political capital on the line, and you know, and try and you know achieve difficult things. You know, po- politics is the art of the possible, but what's possible is is you only find out if you're you're willing to to risk things. So, to me, that's that's the most important thing is just the, the qualities of of a leader. And I differ from Chart here. I believe there are qualities that a leader should have especially the leader of the free world. And these include respect and civility, as it sets an example for everyone else. It also unites those from both sides of the aisle for the common good of the country. Yet Trump has never felt like that kind of person. And this is an important issue for Julie, who has a young daughter. She expects standards from her president. During the 2016 election, many women were hopeful that they would see the first female US president, but instead they got a guy with antisocial tendencies. While his defence is that it was nothing more than locker room talk, he did say grab a woman by the pussy, and he did mock Megyn Kelly's menstrual cycle at the Republican debate, and he did talk about the size of his penis, and he did... Well, I could go on, but you get the picture. It's interesting because I think some of the values of... Um, you know, even in, I think Republicans have certain values that, you know, Trump has definitely crossed the line. You know, I think even starting with the Access Hollywood, right, tape, certain things just get sort of explained away. I've always thought that the Republican Party held important values regarding family, loyalty and faithfulness. So I find it surprising that his sexist rhetoric and affairs with porn stars has been brushed off as just being one of the guys. If I think about the world under Trump... There's like a love-hate type of thing that's going on. It's very binary, right? I think even you see people that used to be maybe voting for a Republican president but might vote for a Democratic senator. I don't think that's the case. Um, I think that 
starting at the top and with Trump, there's a real negative tone. There's either you're right or you're wrong, right? You're either on his side or you're not. Any Republican senator who stands up and criticizes him in any way, take Mitt Romney, he bashes him. I backed Mitt Romney. I backed him. You can see how loyal he is. He was begging for my endorsement. I could have said, Mitt, drop to your knees. He would have dropped to his knees. He was begging. Trump has long demanded personal loyalty from those working for him. This requisite attribute is something he has equally sought from political subordinates. Whilst loyalty may be something we all expect in life, Trump has displayed a notable ruthlessness in obtaining and enforcing it from those within the Republican Party. As a result, examples of sustained resistance are rare. And when such resistance surfaces, Trump is swift in his retribution. Take, for example, Mitt Romney. He has not been shy in coming forward with his criticisms of Trump. First in the 2016 campaign, where he dedicated a speech to denouncing Trump's candidacy, where Romney called him a phony and a fraud. Then, during his administration, marked by his lone vote as a Republican to convict Trump following his impeachment trial, the response from Trump has been ruthless. Trump continues to regularly attack Romney. He is one of the scripted list of boogeymen Trump condemns at 2020 campaign speeches, and the impact is striking. Romney, the 2012 Republican presidential candidate, is now viewed as performing badly by Republicans in his own state of Utah. And it creates a fear, I think, in that party to say anything negative about Trump because he doesn't regard it as constructive feedback. He, you know, he just writes you off and then talks you know, very negatively and almost inappropriately about you. And so I think this... I think there, there is in some ways a very valid decide, uh, excuse me, a division, you know, even amongst families, because I find him despicable in his behavior. And I think it's hard having children to try to teach appropriate values of respect, you know, integrity, politeness, and then to see that behavior. And so it's almost, you know, if I, I know some people who support Trump, it's almost difficult for me to talk to them now because I feel like at a very fundamental level, we don't agree on the basics. I'm not talking about, you know, world politics and domestic policy. I'm talking about just how, how in this current situation can I actually understand a friend or family member who's supporting him? And this is where I perhaps think that Chart might be post-rationalizing Trump's behavior. Do the means really justify the ends? Why have so many people stuck with Trump, despite these obvious character flaws? How much of this is a vote against the Democrats rather than a vote for Trump? But not all Republicans have blindly followed the president. At the back end of 2019, a number of prominent and long-standing Republican political operatives formed a political action committee to coordinate the funding, creation and targeting of advertising attacking Trump and his record. Known as the Lincoln Project, they have arguably developed the most hard-hitting negative advertising of the whole campaign. They believe they are fighting for the soul of the Republican Party. If, if you want your politicians to be angels, like, good luck. And he's just much more vocal and out there 
um, than most of them, but they're all pretty bad guys for the most part. You know, I mean, it's a it's a difficult business that attracts um, people who, you know, aren't great. Politics is without doubt a dirty business, and there are flawed characters on both sides of the aisle. Any Democrat looking at Trump's sexual misdemeanors should remember Bill Clinton had an affair with Monica Lewinsky while he was in the Oval Office. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. You just got to kind of figure out what do you what do you want your society to look like? What do you want um, you know the the rules to be, so to speak, for for everybody? And then vote for the guy that gets closest to that. And, and to me, like, just don't worry about. It. Their, their personal or you know life all that all that much because um, if you start looking around you're not going to like what you see with any of them but is he right here and if so should anything go should we also be ignoring hunter biden's laptop clinton's emails or any of the personal allegations that have been leveled at any candidate is there no line that should be drawn as chart stated it comes down to outcomes and for him trump has delivered i think certainly the economy was was doing fantastic um, prior to the, the shutdowns, um, you know, and, and I saw it, you know, with my own eyes, um, sort of sitting from uh, my spot. I mean, we had the lowest unemployment in, in generations. And what job numbers we had today. Did you hear? Did you hear? Well, we'll go into that. They all say, speak about the economy, speak about the economy. Um, and, and Trump doesn't get all the credit for that, but he also doesn't get none of it. Char also thinks the tax reform bill has been great, though Julie stated to me that she believes that this was for the benefit of big business and Trump's friends. An important issue that both Char and Julie both touched on was leadership. If we've had one you know, kind of problem with the Trump presidency, it is that it has you know, uh, sort of diminished people's respect for us as the, the moral uh, you know, leader of the world and the, the democratic moral leader of, of the, the free world and the champion of those those liberal values. We always have to be leading with that. We always have to lead with those values. And, and you know, when we do, I think that's when we're at our best. For Trump, these negotiations are perhaps where he has damaged America internationally. While he was tough with China on trade, he has also picked fights with Europe, while at times seemingly giving Russia a free pass. I think leadership, whether you're the president of the United States or you're the CEO of a company, you know, is very much about, you know, bringing people up with you, right? Leading, not creating divisiveness, like having a common goal. Like, I'm not sure what the goals in the United States are anymore, right? We've made enemies with so many nations. And this is the thing. After talking to both Char and Julie, the major divide I see between them is really with Trump. Yes, they may have differences of opinion in relation to policy, but on the basic and vital issues that affect us all, their positions align. They both want strong leadership, and while Julie finds Trump despicable, Shark also recognises his flaws. And even if they approach things differently, they both want a strong economy, and both appreciate the importance of universally affordable healthcare. This is why the division doesn't feel natural. I think five years ago, Julian Chart could have sat around a table and discussed their issues over a beer. They would have disagreed, of course. But democracy thrives on disagreement. It's designed as a battle of ideas to pull the country in a direction which is best suited for the majority. So why is there so much division? Both identified that politics now, more than ever, is woven into the fabric of our daily lives. 
I don't remember people in the U.S. talking about politics ever before as much as they do now. Now politics is everywhere. It's in your face, right? I mean, it's it's you know it, it, all over the place. We have all been unwittingly drawn into politics, whereas before we would perhaps read about things in the paper or see updates on the news. Politics is now a 24-7, entertainment story. Politics has infiltrated every single aspect of our lives. And I think it's bad. I think it's bad for society. Um, you know, I, I think it's it was better when we all just regarded each other as, as individuals and when it went about our business and didn't, you know, have these presumptions of, of guilt simply based on identity or, you know, belief. Like, we need to be kinder to each other. Um, we need to be more charitable and, and we need to, you know, realize that, you know, we're all uh, Americans at the end of the day and we all love our country. Uh, at least I hope we do and that we want what's best for it. And we're not always going to agree, but at the end of the day, we're on the same team. So, you know, that's how I've, I've always approached it and, and thought of it. It is easy to point the finger as to why this has happened. The growth in 24 hour news, the internet and technology. One reason is strictly like the 24-hour news cycle, right? That's something, I think social media, I mean, it's hard to get away from the news period. Based on the apps on my phone, right, I'm getting alerts all day long, right, about this, that, and the other. And I think everyone else is too. So I think there's one, one element there. Now there is channel after channel of 24-hour news coverage. And Roger Isles mastered the economics of this for Fox News. Rather than fight for everyone, build a partisan base and maximize ad revenue. And other channels have copied this for the left. Politics in America has been blood for it since pretty much day one, right? I mean, you know, there's there's the old thing about Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. I can't remember which one, but one of them called the other hermaphrodite um, in there in, in the newspaper. So, you know, this has been a thing in American politics going back a, a very, very long time. I, I think social media is the biggest contributor to the way it feels, right? Because now you're living in you know, your sort of own little world where, you know, instead of, you know, seeing, getting your crazy uncle's conspiracy theories, you know, and hearing them for 30 minutes at Thanksgiving dinner, now you're seeing his damn posts every day. The internet has enabled conspiracies to go mainstream. Take, for example, QAnon. This is a conspiracy theory that developed and spread within far-right groups on the anonymous message board 4chan at the back end of 2017. The theory alleges that there is a deep state faction of the American liberal elite who are plotting against Donald Trump. There will be an event known as the Storm, where the leaders of this faction are arrested on the orders of Trump. The most extreme elements of this theory allege that members of the faction are Satan worshipping paedophiles. Trump has amplified QAnon messages by retweeting or mentioning QAnon affiliated Twitter accounts, sometimes multiple times a day. And for the 2020 House ballot, there are estimated to be 19 Republican candidates who have promoted or even supported the QAnon movement. We also now have influencers and podcasters with millions of followers perpetuating these conspiracies. While many can discern the truth, others are wrapped up in believing anything they read, sharing and arguing the points they discovered just two minutes ago. This has become a pressing issue for social media platforms. How should they deal with false information? Reddit, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube have all cracked down on QAnon-related activity, but also have found themselves censoring more credible news sources. Twitter has particularly been under pressure, even hiding posts from the president which are deemed false or dangerous. But this creates a new danger. 
In a country with strong constitutional protection for speech, this can appear politically motivated. I think social media has a role. You know, I think the way we communicate, the way we get news is changing, right? I think, you know, you go back a couple decades, everyone read the newspaper from cover to cover every day. You know, now if you wait for the paper tomorrow morning, it's, you know, it's fairly outdated. I, I do believe that people are using social media in various ways to, to get out certain messaging and ideas, for sure. Social media does create a trust issue. Despite the criticisms people may have of media companies, with Twitter we have to contend with anonymous accounts, foreign interference, and bots spreading false information. And so I think being aware of that is important. And, you know, I think sometimes it's worthwhile to follow, you know, people that you don't necessarily agree with. Char also recognised the need to listen to opposing voices and said that he also listens to NPR, even though he disagrees with a lot of what they say. But he also stated that he watches Fox News, mainly for Tucker Carlson. While Julie also watches Fox News, she told me that she can't usually stand more than five minutes at a time, preferring CNN as she believes that is more to the centre. Me, as an outsider, I find both Fox and CNN partisan. And while I would expect both Chart and Julie to argue that the other is spreading false information, they actually both conceded that there is a lack of rigorous independent journalism, and both seek out reliable and robust sources of news. But the past two decades has seen a dramatic change in the media landscape. The internet has led to a proliferation of free online content, where the advertising dollars have moved from traditional news providers to social media giants. At the same time, the obligations for TV networks to present fair and balanced news coverage has been removed, and regulations for online content marketers is vague. This has led to newspapers and TV networks fighting an existential battle for commercial survival. A casualty of this struggle has been investment in both investigative journalism and fact-checking. A more subtle yet equally worrying trend has been that such traditional outlets follow the tactic to attract an audience using clickbait. There have been other dramatic changes to the media landscape too. For example, Joe Rogan has created one of the most followed shows in the world, built on open platforms and likely operating with a skeleton staff. Now anyone with a laptop and an internet connection can create a media company. And they are. There's been a proliferation of small media companies and podcasters, bloggers and social media influencers who are taking the audiences away from traditional media companies. News has become a world of opinion and entertainment, but who is really benefiting? We may be in a post-truth era where spin, marketing and misinformation are increasingly winning the battle. The election tomorrow will certainly be the most watched in history. We will all be glued to the television, watching hour-by-hour coverage while discussing updates on Twitter, adding to the noise. And outside of laptops and accusations of foreign relationships, Julian Chart agree that COVID is the primary issue for voters. If anybody says anything else other than, you know, COVID, the pandemic and its impact to, um, you know, our societies, I, I, I don't I don't know how you can say anything but that. In February of this year, Trump looked certain for re-election. Despite his chaotic four-year term, he still had strong support. But the global pandemic, along with the death of George Floyd, has changed everything. And his response to COVID reflects the division in the country, and his performance has been marked along party lines. The COVID-19 is still here, and the daily threat to American health and prosperity is continuing. It didn't have to be this way. 
The cure, remember, I said it right at the beginning, the cure cannot be worse than the problem itself. And you have Michigan locked down, you have Pence, all Democrat governors. You know what's going to happen? On November 4th, the day after the election, they're going to open it up. They're doing it for political reasons. Democrats clearly consider Trump and his administration's response to COVID to be an unequaled failure. They highlight that he tried to downplay the seriousness of the virus early on, whilst privately being fully aware of the impending dangers. Once the disease started to get out of control in democratic states, he overtly politicised the pandemic. He seeked to minimise the impact of it upon his popularity by making the response an ideological differentiator between Republican democratic states. Whether it's the virus that we're talking about or many other public health threats, the Democrat policy of open borders is a direct threat to the health and well-being of all Americans. Now you see it with the coronavirus. You see it. For a long time, he also refused to wear a mask, denigrated Democratic states for refusing to open up their economies, and publicly admonished health professionals whose guidance undermined his position. All the while, the United States has suffered more infections and deaths than any other country. But it is a different story for Republicans. They think Trump has performed well. He instigated unprecedented international travel restrictions despite strong domestic and international criticism. He coordinated the rapid production of required ventilators and protective equipment while seeking to balance the need to protect civil liberties and support the economy. In addition, Republicans think that there is no leader who would have been able to satisfy all the conflicting demands in what is a singularly unparalleled event. But isn't his response somewhere in between? There has been clear failures and Trump has been too quick to shift blame and polarise these complex issues. However, early criticism of his travel ban actions and the framing of them in terms of xenophobic actions did undercut the opportunity for bipartisan collaboration. I closed it down. I took a lot of heat. The World you know, Health Organization was very much against. They didn't like it. They actually put out statements about it. Uh, in all fairness to Joe Biden, he called me xenophobic. So I was called xenophobic, I was called racist, how could I do a thing like this? With these very complicated problems, it is obvious now that binary political arguments benefit nobody. Something as fundamental as people's health and safety at a time like this, which is going to definitely be his you know, legacy, if you will, is the response or lack of response to COVID, I mean, you know, he's he's talking about how it's, you know things are solved, and yet you know I'm finding out today that France and Germany are shutting down again. We're acting as if this pandemic isn't real, right? We we sort of like just don't have task force, you know, press briefings anymore. We're we're debating whether or not people should wear masks. Like I don't. So there's nothing to like. I mean, we're going to have to come together and say like, okay, well, what matters? While many expect or want to shut down because of health and safety, we must also look at the other side of this. Millions of people are out of work, depression is on the rise, suicides are up, and the economic impact of this will be felt for decades. And I don't underestimate how tricky this is as a subject. Lockdowns are easier if you're financially comfortable, but what about a single mum with two kids living in a small apartment? What about the small business owners watching their life's work being destroyed? These are things you can't get back. If you spend 20 years building a business, 
And because of a pandemic, it's shut down. You have to let go all your staff and, you know, all of that. I mean, it's just hugely disruptive. So for me, it is absolutely, um, you know, top of mind, number one. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm in favor of, uh, you know, opening up, opening up quicker. Um, You know, I I want Texas to lead the way um, in opening up. And, you know, as we're seeing with these numbers out of Europe, um, you know, you guys are experiencing a, a really dramatic second wave. Um, and, and, you know, despite having relatively, uh, you know, stringent measures in some places. So, you know, there, there's this thing is just way more contagious than, than I think anyone bargained for or thought. And as a result, it is you know spreading um, just uncontrollably, despite any human effort to control it. Uh, the only places that have done well are like Sweden and then, you know, New Zealand, Taiwan. Uh, you know, the islands, but, uh, you know, that's it really everywhere else, the, no matter what has been tried has just ended up, you know, not working. And, and so it, it's sad to say, but like as humans, we kind of just have to accept that certain things are, are beyond our control. And this is the fundamental point. How do we navigate tough questions such as this when there are rational arguments on both sides of the divide? There is an obvious disconnect between those who want the country to get back to business and those who want limits on such freedoms to reduce infections. These groups are both equally passionate, with equally important points that need considering, and importantly, are all arguing from the perspective of the wider common good. But when we have argued with each other for four years over the most basic facts, is it a surprise that we can't compromise over fundamental issues affecting people's rights? In the meantime, the name-calling and noise continues, while people struggle with the incoherent and inconsistent response from all levels of government, both sides of the divide. Surely it is obvious that society is better served when we work together, when we are united on common goals and we find the compromises that do work. And it shouldn't be that hard to find a way forward. This isn't a wishy-washy, naive opinion. I genuinely believe that we aren't all that different. We share the same needs, concerns and desires. And these interviews undertaken for the first episode exemplify that. And as Chart stated about his fellow Americans, we're all on the same team. So if we aren't really all that different, why are we seemingly entering into a culture war? Is it for the ambition of others? Are we being manipulated and played for fools? And is change possible when everything is politicised? I don't think we can agree on basic facts anymore. You know, I joke that if you showed multiple people the colour red, that they wouldn't all see it as red. It's like we can't, we can't even agree on something as simple as that. America heads into a new election tomorrow with increasing accusations of fraud and voter suppression alongside concerns regarding civil unrest. Both Char and Julie fully expect that this election will end up like the 2000 presidential contest decided in the Supreme Court. In fact, Donald Trump tweeted out on the 30th of October that a Joe Biden victory will only result from a Supreme Court decision. If the election is contested and litigation follows, the inevitable inflammatory rhetoric will throw fuel onto an already burning fire. Whoever wins this election, it feels like things will likely get worse before they get better. But how will things get better? With my interviews, I found that the divide is not as big as the media portrays. But I want to better understand the arguments on both sides in relation to all issues where there is currently a big disconnect. So over the coming weeks, I'll be covering politics, the media, the economy, the constitution 
and technology. I'll look to get behind the rhetoric and discord to try and understand where this bitter divide has come from and what hope there is for the future, and if politics can be about unity rather than division. This show was written and narrated by myself, Peter McCormack, with additional production and sound design by Danny Knowles. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the safest and best place to buy and sell Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. I am Peter McCormack. Head over to defiance.news where you can download previous shows and watch our films. Also, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, please head over to our sister podcast, What Bitcoin Did.